At American University, we don't just hope for change, we create it. We don't just dream of a better world, we make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout DC to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu slash gradschool. You're now tuned in to The Investor Show, where we teach simple wealth creation for the common investors with investment advisor, award-winning author, international speaker, and founder of Royal Financial Investment Group, Prince Dykes. Once again, guys, this is Prince Dykes here. Welcome to The Investor Show podcast. As always, thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, hope you guys are having a nice, great day. Um, as you guys can already see from what we previous videos we've doing, don't forget to leave a review, leave a comment, questions, concerns, all of the good stuff and stuff like that. Uh, but um, I don't have a lot of time. I definitely you guys have a lot of time, so we're just going to jump straight into it. So as always, like you guys seen, we, we try to go out and get the best people in the industry who bring in the experience, expertise, highly successful. Uh, who can bring something and teach you guys who have excelled in their careers. And today I have, James, I don't want to mis, mispronounce your last name. It's Florentine? Foytland. Like, remember, Foytland. English Foyt, the race driver, Foytland. So it's Foytland. Uh, <laughs> Foytland. Yeah, it's a weird, it's sort of an odd spelling because it's F-O-Y-T. It was, it's kind of like, um, sort of like, a, I guess I would call it a hybrid name when my uh Distant relatives came here. Uh, uh, they they showed up and nobody could pronounce their name either, so they just got a new name. <laughs> oh, okay. So yeah, it was like it was like yeah, right, all right. Here's your name. <laughs> okay. And uh, it's really me... funny because if you went to Ellis Island, if you go on those tours, they always tell you, uh, no, they never did that, and I know for a fact they did it because that's where my name came from. <laughs> that's true. But let's yeah. let's uh so so people who don't know who Mr. Uh, Portland is, um, Mr. James Portland, he uh, been on Wall Street pretty much his whole entire life. Just starting out, I let him get into that. Of, yeah, I, uh, I was um I've been uh, I was fortunate enough to have uh, some relatives who were always mm -hmm. interested in stock investing. Um, they weren't you know wealthy people, but they were they just they just thought it was cool and interesting. They had, had this hunger to like, you know, make that big trade, you know, and maybe make some money. You know, some people go out and buy lottery tickets. I had like uh, a grandfather who like was just interested in stocks. Um, and I had parents, uh, a father who kind of worked in the business, so, you know, he, he did what we would call back office, like the, you know, the people who pay the bills and keep the lights on and clear the trades and all that kind of stuff. He wasn't a front office guy. He wasn't like a salesman or a broker or anything, but he did work in the business. So it, it had appeal. So since I was a kid, um, oh, like practically since I had my first paper route, I had always paid attention to the stock market. So that's why it looks like I've been doing this. Like I, I always tell people I've been doing this for 40 years, even though I'm 54 years old. Because <laughs> it's like since I was a kid, I've been like every day I read the Wall Street Journal, I, I stuff like that. Um, 
I, I ended up working as I started as a lowly stockbroker and uh, did all those things you see in all those movies, you know, made the cold calls and did seminars and uh, got interns and did all kinds of stuff like that. And over many years, it took a real long time. I built up a big business, um, which I ended up selling out. I got out of the business in 2008. I had an opportunity to sell it. And I, I, I took that opportunity. Um, since then, I'm sort of more like been a casual observer and I've gotten more active lately because I've been involved um, uh, through some other ventures in New York City and it's kind of come back, you know, it's come back. So I've been very focused on it again. Um, And particularly, it's really interesting right now because you have a lot of similar events. Uh, I sold my business in 2008, sort of in the middle of the last financial crisis. Um, Now, James, James, for for the viewers, what type of business was it? Oh, well, basically, I was a stockbroker, and you would say I was a money manager. So I had individual accounts. I had, uh, you know, regular people. I had some very wealthy people. I had some institutional accounts like banks and some very large corporations. Um, I had some people who were like institutions because they were huge. You know, they had, you know, significant assets. Um, It was kind of a mixed business. There was a a lot of – I used to uh, buy, you know, municipal bonds, which are tax-free bonds for what we would call widows and orphans. There was, you know, like little ladies would buy these things. Uh, Generally, they're safe and they don't pay any taxes on them. And I used to have a fairly large business of sort of ex-East Coast people, like people from New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, who moved west and moved to California – um, and for whatever reason, they like to hear a New York voice on the phone when they wanted to call their stockbroker. So I, it, it, I had a <laughs> bunch of people do. Yeah, it's sort of, you know, it's it's how you grew up. So, uh, and and a couple of ladies would tell me that you know we were three hours ahead in New York, and we're always going to be three hours ahead. So they wanted to talk, mm-hmm. you know, they wanted to talk to the guy who was three hours ahead. Um, then uh, I also did a fairly significant amount of stock trading. Uh, which was really my forte. I was involved in technology stocks in the 80s, and then when it got to be big in the 90s, it, it, it kind of like I was already the guy. So let me, let me just hear this one time, sure. James. When you brought Amazon stock for the first time, how much was it? <laughs> oh, this is my famous story. Um, I had a uh, gentleman that I met uh, basically on the subway in New York. You know, New York is a people place, and anybody who tells you different is, you know, doesn't know anything about New York. So you have to kind of like either you have to like you have to like people or be able to deal with people. Otherwise, you can never survive in New York because people are like in your face. There's no place to hide. Um, so true. taking the subway every day, I used to see a gentleman fairly well dressed, and uh, a couple of times we bumped into each other because we were kind of. You know, the trains can get really crowded. If you've ever been to New York, you can, you know, it's like, it's like, I mean, they can be totally packed. You're basically like in each other's face practically. And uh, upon having a conversation with him, he was, uh, he was, he worked for Saks Fifth Avenue and used to sell shoes and and made some decent money and had a little bit of money, was looking to invest. And I, and I said, oh, come down, you know, come to my office, talk to me anytime, whenever, whenever you have a chance, just come down. Um, and he made it, you know, he took it, he had a day off in the middle of the week one day and he came down and um, this was sort of in the early 90s at the sort of the height of the internet bubble. And basically anything that had .com or .net in the name, as soon as it would go public, it would shoot up like crazy. So we had looked at Amazon and it, I, 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 don't, I don't remember the numbers exactly, but it, 
it had gone public and probably traded up to somewhere around $40 or $45 a share or 47 then it had sold off fairly significantly, was probably down around 17. Uh, this gentleman decided this was, you know, because he knew retail and he felt comfortable with, even though Amazon was an internet retailer, he felt comfortable with the idea of buying retail stocks. So we got into it and it, it around, I don't know, $21 a share or something like that. And uh, basically we bought it all. Uh, or we took all his money, which <laughs> I wouldn't recommend. Right. And we, he had about 25000 and we just bought the whole thing. And we spent it all. I don't know what, what I, I can't remember the exact number of shares. Um, and it, it was a, you know, it was a big position for a guy with, that was all the money he had. And, uh, the stock started to trade up, and he wanted to buy more. So I said, well, we could go on margin, but it's more dangerous and try to explain it. He's like, do it, do it. <laughs> so he got, you know, the, you, know, there's the, you know, people talk about the greed and fear. Well, the greed part really took over because it started to go up, and he was making a little money, and it went up. Well, um, lucky for us, I think it was up around $27 a share, and now we had doubled our position. So, you know, maybe we're sitting on, oh, Let's see. I have. I, I need a calculator, but say we're sitting on around two thousand shares or so. Um, and we, uh, this guy goes on TV, and I forget the name of the analyst. He says Amazon is a. I think he said it was a six hundred dollar stock or some crazy thing like this. The stock shoots like we we call it a parabolic rise. It just went straight up. Like the next day, it must have opened up about a hundred dollars higher than where it was. Um, and so it went right to the sky and, uh, this gentleman called me like basically at the end of the close one, uh, like very quickly and said, listen, I want you to sell everything and wire the money to a bank in Dominican Republic. And I was was like, listen, listen, we can make more money. We can, you know, we can do things. We can, you know, make more. He goes, no, no, no. We just got to cash out. I want the money. (laughs) So I said, okay, this is what you do. You sleep on this. You know I'm here real early in the morning. You call me at 6.30 in the morning. You tell me sell. I won't say anything. I'll sell and do whatever you say. No problem. So I had to have him sign. You know, you got to sign some paperwork because he was wiring the money and things like that. We got all that taken care of. He calls me the next morning. He's ready to go. He says, just sell it. I sell it. The guy just quits his job, moves to Dominican Republic, and is still living there right now. You're now tuned in to The Investor Show. Wow. And uh, he reti- you know, and every once in a while I get a phone call, although my phone is on ice at the moment. I, I Unfortunately, I dropped it over the weekend in the rain. So not only did it get banged really hard, but it got wet. So it's, it's in the phone hospital at the moment being <laughs> hopefully in ICU. Wow. So it, it's either going to be fixed or it looks like I'm going to be buying a new phone very shortly. Um, now, James, I ask you a quick question. Good. Now, uh, do your time under assets under management. How much money you probably think that you probably manage? Oh, a, a it was time? well, you know, it had to be well over a billion at one time, easily. You know, easily. Okay. It was you, over you a billion. The height of the, I had, I had. First of all, I had a Mexican bank at one time as an account, so I had a <laughs> bank as an account. And uh, I also had some very big. Um, I had a, a Chinese company. I had a. Uh, I had a couple other companies that were very large. It was a lot of money. But I, my attitude, what, 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 
you know, now my attitude might be different nowadays, but at, at the time, my attitude was I'm a great believer in the investment process. And I think anybody over a long, given the long enough, like what do most of us have for free that we don't really pay attention? Most of us have time. And generally, investments, the reality is it boils down to time, your time versus money, how much money you have and how much time you have. And uh, everybody, like you read those stories where a guy worked for UPS his whole life, and he never made more than $30,000 a year, and he retired, and he had $70 million in his bank account. And because... The, it's the process. You've got to do, like, I found that there were a lot of, like, I, don't, I hate to call them little people or smaller investors. A lot of brokers would say, oh, no, it's not worth it. But I had people, you know, I knew they had good jobs. They had a corporate job. They were young. They were starting out. I said, okay, this is what you've got to do. Just let's make a plan. How much can you save? We'll put so much away. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. And generally, if the people followed the plan, um, and it, 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 was, it was much less brilliance than it was just doing what you were supposed to do. In other words, put your money in your IRA every year. Put your money in a 401k plan when you're supposed to. Max it out, if the, especially if the company matches. Um, do those things. Buy, get in a stock purchase plan if you don't have a lot of money. Buy your local utility. Buy, I, I started with banks. I started with a stock purchase plan with a bank in New Jersey, a little local bank. And the bank grew like a weed. And the stock guy went up and up and up and up, and it never stopped going up, like, for 13 years. And, you know, through thick and thin, you know, stock market crashes and everything, I just kept buying the stock. And after a while, it was like I didn't even notice I was buying it. I just didn't know any better. I just bought it. And, <laughs> and like, I, like, what a lot of people I notice do, especially at the beginning, is they try to outsmart themselves. They watch all these guys on CNBC, or they, in my day, we used to have this show, Wall Street Week, that was on at night with this guy, Louis Rukeyser, and he'd have all these geniuses, like he'd interview everybody, like George Soros, like everybody would come on and talk about what stocks, and there's nothing like a, you know, you, you see it all the time. A guy has a couple of grand, and suddenly he thinks he's going to be the next Warren Buffett. Well, you might be, but it's going to take a while. And if you got to, if you want to, if you want to get down to it, Warren Buffett only had a couple of million dollars when he was in his early fifties. So he made an awful lot of money after that. And uh, you know, the trick I think for most people is to get it, you know, get involved. Say you have a an index fund, and you put a certain amount of money in every month. Just do it. Don't look at the market. Forget about all this. Just turn the TV off. Watch an old movie. You know, have fun, take your kids out to a baseball game, do stuff like that. Just let the money do the work. You, you focus on your job and your education and whatever you're trying to do with your life. Just put it away. And, and I'm, I'm talking about more, you know, quality, you know, and I know that word is way overused. We used to call them blue chip stocks. But, like, you, you want to look, mm -hmm. if you buy an S&P index, the S&P is not going to go to zero. And you know what? If it goes way down, maybe it, it, it's like it's like when do you go? Like when I, you know what? I, I sometimes I, I there's a store on Madison Avenue in New York called Beretta. They make handguns, mm -hmm. but they also make hunting clothes. Now I don't hunt, but I think the clothes are really cool. So I buy hunting clothes and I like I wear them when I garden and stuff like that. And when, when do I buy them? In August, they have this huge sale where everything is like 90% off, and I go running in there. Well, now you can even do it all on the Internet. You, they just send you an email, and you go on the Internet, and you can look at all the big sale stuff, and you can buy a $200 shirt for $29. Well, the, with investing, that's what you – you know, when things go down, instead of panicking, if you have if – if this is money, if you're 30 years old and you're saving money for when you're 50 – 
you know, in a long time, there's going to be a lot of ups and downs. On the other hand, if you're 30 years old and you're saving money for when you're 31 because you want to make a down payment on the house, then you have like you have, your parameters are different. You have to you have to adjust for your parameters and your expectations. But I but to me, for for smaller investors, the process and if you just stick with it, it works. And I can tell you, there were so many people I started with. They were. 28 years old, had a brand new job, started working for Ross Perot, moved their way up the corporate ladders. You know, 10 years later, they're, you know, they went from 20,000 in their account to 400,000. And, and who knows what they had in their 401k plan at work and everything else, because they just did what they were supposed to do. Now, Jay, when you say do what you're supposed to do, what do you think are some of the mistakes that people make? Oh, well, they, well, the biggest thing I see is they make plans and they don't fall through. In other words, they'll say, I'm going to save $100 a month, and they do it once, and then they don't do it. Or they, they buy a stock, they save their money like this guy with the, like with the Amazon story. Um, if, if Amazon would have went down, and then he never would have did anything after that. And hmm. um, I had another guy, when I first started, this guy, I remember, he used to own he was a young guy. He was like, I think he worked for a family like trucking business. He used to, he used to also own parts of horse races. He wanted to be a big roller. He wasn't a big roller yet, but he wanted to be one. Like he like, he like, he dressed like Frank Sinatra. He thought he was cool. You know, he smoked cigars. He did all this stuff. Right. So he, he, he had like ambition, you know? And then, so, um, I remember we bought a stock. It was Western Digital at the time. They make they make disk drives now. This is like in the I would say in the mid nineties. So we bought it and it just sat dead for a very long time. Well, he didn't give up. He bought other all kinds of other stocks in the meantime. Well, after about two years, the Western Digital suddenly rocketed off and the thing went from like you know six dollars a share to twenty one dollars a share in like a month. And then we blew it out and he made a ton of money and he never made. I don't think we ever made a better trade than that. Ever again, we never made more money than that. And uh, it, it, but he didn't give up. He stayed. He stayed with it. What I find is so many people they do one little thing. If it backs off even a penny, they quit right away. And and mm-hmm. and investing is kind of like like if you go to Niagara Falls and you watch the water run over those that ridge there and fall. It's massive and amazing. Well. If you, if you do your homework, they, they can tell you that it, 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 it's like a certain amount of inches every year the, that pressure of that water eats away at the rock. Well, investing is like, is like, it, it, it's, it, it's, like a, it's like a marathon. It's not a burst of speed. Forget this get-rich-quick stuff. If you just do the right thing, like they used to always say, if you save $2,000 a year for 40 years, you'll have $2 million by the time you're 65 or something like that. That used to be some old thing. This is all true. Just do it. And what I, what I found is over many years is a lot of times the people who just did what they were supposed to do, like – they, they made their plan. They said, look, I'm going to put $500 a month away every month. I'm going to put $100 a month away every month. And they just did that and stuck with it. Those were the people that after 10 years, they had money. And the other guys who were like smart and they were coming to me with a hot stock that their plumber was buying and their, or like, you know, or some crazy idea. And I'm like, no, that thing's a rip. I'm going to buy it anyway. And, I, and then we used to make them sign what we used to, they called it the penny stock letter was the polite way in the brokerage business. You used to call it the idiot letter. And like you'd make somebody <laughs> sign a letter that would basically say, hey, I agree. If I buy this stock, I'm going to lose all my money. And I know I'm going to do it wow. anyway. 
And people would sign the letter, and they'd indefinitely lose all the money. And then, of course, they'd always try to blame you for it later on. But because their plumber knew more than you knew, and you only did this every day, like 14 hours a day, but everybody else knows everything. And uh, so, so James, like, you know, you always get that person that comes along and say, whoa, dude, I, I know this guy, my plumber, my buddy, my cousin, my friend told me about this great stock or whatever. But how does, you know, especially nowadays, you were – in this game way long before social media. Time, yeah. But if you look at the predominant, for, I mean, you look at the uh, environment of social media, now you have plenty of people out there pointing yeah. out this stock, articles. How do you know what you want to go with? Well, I think you got to, first of all, you got to do your, you got to learn some basics. Like nowadays, it was different when I started. When I started, like in the 80s particularly, you still had a lot of people, because it, the, the retail investors had kind of been out of the stock market a long time, almost like it is now again. But during the 70s, retail investors got really burned. So by the time you got to the 80s, nobody bought, like only hedge funds and, you know, big funds and things like that bought stocks. People like retail investors, unless you were very wealthy or had some kind of trust fund or something, you weren't really involved. So if you mention the stock market, people right away go, oh, it could be a crash. I could lose all my money. It's the end of the world. It's like this and that. What I think particularly nowadays, people have to learn some economic fundamentals. They have to learn uh, financial literacy. Like, like those books you write, that's why they're so good. They teach, people need to learn, like, like, like I, and, and I see it, like, and I hate to say it, like, I don't want to brand a whole generation, but millennials are even the worst. They're like, they don't even get, like, I've worked with millennials, and a girl we work with would leave, give her leave, and take another job, because the new job paid more money, and people were surprised by this. Like, why did she leave? Because it paid more money. And like, hello, like, why would she not make more money? Like, wh- like why would you not make more money doing the same thing? Like, there's no reason not to. Um, I just think that people are very, uh, are amazingly financially illiterate now. They don't understand the most basic things. Um, they're very wrapped up in politicizing everything with politics. Well, politics doesn't get you rich. Unless you're, as you say, show me a rich politician, I'll show you a crook. Um, you just don't like, like that doesn't, that's not going to make you money, politics. Think, you got to learn, like, learn how to read a balance statement. Learn what, what, like, if you're interested, most people, like we used to say, there used to be a guy, Peter Lynch, in the 70s, and he wrote a book about how uh, if you, a new investors should invest in things they know about. So if you work in retail, like this guy worked in retail, my Amazon guy, he looked. He wanted to look at retail stocks because that's what he felt comfortable. So even though he wanted to get involved in the internet, he didn't know what he didn't know. Like he didn't really understand all the technology. I mean, he was a smart guy, so given him time, he would have understood the technology. But he knew a lot about retail because he had worked in retail like his whole life, like twenty years since he was a, like like since he was in college. He had always worked in retail. And so, so even though, and even though he never wasn't, he was always just a salesman, you know. Uh, but he knew a lot about the nuances, like about retail. So when he looked at Amazon and he read about it, he's like, "This makes perfect sense. These guys are going to make a lot of money. I want. How do I get in on that?" And for a lot of people, most people have a specialized knowledge of something that they take for granted. Maybe they're a police officer and they know a lot about law enforcement. 
Maybe they work for a drug company and they know a lot about the drug industry. Maybe, they're, uh, maybe they work for the government and they work for a government agency and they just know how regulation, like what regulations are in the air and what to stay away from because they're gonna, something, something new is going to come up that's going to cost everybody a lot of money. Um, maybe they're involved in sports and they just see all the equipment and they know about the different kinds of equipment. Everybody, no matter who you are, you have some kind of specialized knowledge that you don't even realize you have. You totally take it for granted. For most new investors, I would start there and build on that. So if I say, say I'm married to a woman and she's a nurse, she knows a lot about medical stuff, probably a lot more than I'm ever going to know. So for investing, she might want to start with medical products, anything that has biotech companies, any. But then she also has to get the financial basics. Like now she's got to learn how do you read a balance sheet? How do you look at a stock chart? You don't have to be a genius. You just have to get the basics down. What are things to – then you have to learn about the stock market itself. Like, like, like I have all these, like, these sayings that everybody makes fun of me all the time. Like if it can't get any better than this, it can only get worse. You can't fall off the floor. Like there's all these like, oh, no good deed goes unpunished. Like there's all these really old, like if you worked on Wall Street long enough, you've heard all these things a million times. And a lot of, and, and they end up being true. A broken, even a broken clock is right twice a day. Now the thing now, James, to watch I, out I, for, I, oh, go ahead. I, I want to ask, ask this question too, right? Like you were saying, the things to watch out that people get into when they're looking into getting these stocks, right? When you say, hey, reading that balance sheet, what should a person look for on that balance sheet? Well, first of all, you've got to know your industry. So say I'm a nurse and I look in the medical industry, I might have a leg up right away because I, I understand more about that industry than somebody who just walked in off the street. Like, I don't really know anything. I know a little bit about biotechs, how they trade in general. If you asked me to pick you a biotech right now, I wouldn't even be able to name one because I haven't looked at those stocks in years. But I, like, it, has a, it has a certain way that industry trades, and there's certain – like every industry has its own like, nuances. For generally, for example, in the old days, biotech companies would, um, would say, hey, we're working, on a new, we're working on a new drug that cures pancreatic cancer. And – there might be a little bump in it if, 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 the people, if people know whoever worked at that biotech has had success in the past doing something. So the stock may bump a little bit, but generally it's going to sit for a long time, and they're going to wait for a milestone announcement. So when they announce, hey, we're, go- we are going, to dr- we're going to drug trial, boom, the stock may jump up. Or we got, we, we, our first trials have been successful. Now we have to do a more broad, then the stock will go up. Now, you just you have to. That's how those stocks trade differently. There, you, when you look at a biotech, you're going to see a balance sheet that's probably not going to be real pretty, because generally they're not making any money at all. They're probably losing tons of money. You look at the burn rate. In other words, how fast they're spending money. Um, if you look at a steel company, it's totally different because a steel company has big factory investment in factory and equipment. They have a big. They have a lot of assets, like physical assets. They have a lot of employees that are, probably have specialized knowledge that they have to train and hire and uh, retain. Um, they have pension issues that are you know, unique to that industry. Um, they, have technolo- they do have technology stuff. There's, I mean, the blast furnace, when it first was invented, was a huge technological leap. Um, 
it's uh, like, so every industry has its own nuances. And if you start, I find the best way to learn about finance is if you take what you already know and you build on that. Now, as for all the social media and the CNBCs and the Bloomberg and all this stuff, an important thing to remember is they're on there because they have something to sell. They're selling you stuff. Now, what do you elaborate on that? What do you mean it has? All right. So, for example, when I when I see an analyst and he comes on TV and say he's from Goldman Sachs, and I, I don't, I'm not trying to pick on them or anything. I'm just using a hypothetical example. And he says, oh, we're, you know, we're looking at General Electric and it's 60 right now and we're looking at a sell at 65 and it'll be fully valued around 65. So you still got a couple of points in here. For all you know, Goldman Sachs either might have bought the stock at 20 and they're looking to sell it. So they're just trying to run it up to, to get out of it. Um, they could whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you telling me they're pump and dumps actually happen? Well, it's not quite to that level because there's other things. For example, they might be trying to get um, some investment banking from General Electric or General Motors. And so they cover the stock and hype the stock because then they show when they try to get an investment banking deal, like say they do a bond issue or restructure something or sell a division or buy another company, have them merge with somebody or whatever, um, they, they need to show that company to prove to them that they, they know a lot about the company. And the first thing the company looks at, it goes, oh, does your, you know, does your analyst cover us? Do they like to st- have a buy on the stock? You know, they didn't say, hey, the president, you know, because I've, I've, I've read reports where analysts have said, you know, the company sucks and they, and they, and sorry, excuse my English, the company's no good and the, and the, and the people who run the company are either unqualified or, you know, they're from a different industry, so they don't even understand the industry they're in. You know, you're not going to get much business from that company if you're like ragging on the chairman of the company. <laughs> you know, true. but anyway, Goldman Sachs will come out there and like, or, or Merrill Lynch, they, they, they're looking for business. They're trying to sell something all the time. Even these guys, when you read Forbes and they tell you about a lot of these stocks that they, you know, they look good or they're buying, a lot of times those are, by the time you read the article, the stock's already run up. They're really looking to sell this thing. And, and you know what, James, I want you to hit on that again. I tell people that all the time. People bring me articles, news, yeah, they, blah, blah, blah. It, it, you know what, it, you know, James, before, yeah. I, before I jump, I'm just telling everybody how, how we met. Uh, I was up in New York a couple of months ago and as I always tell my viewers and everybody that, you know, you guys know I try to get better and better and I go out and I research these things, meet new people and stuff like that. So I go up to New York and uh, I get a hotel on Wall Street and um, I take a tour on Wall Street and the inside of the tour. And ironically, James was my tour guide and James is taking us, giving us the inside of the tour. And, you know, we ended up talking and talking afterwards, getting a cup of coffee at Starbucks. And that's how you see him on a YouTube channel, all of the great stuff. So that's how we met. But the thing about it is I want to talk to those people who or I want to speak for the people that are in the social media, somebody who lives in the middle of, I don't know, South Dakota somewhere that pulls right. up the Internet. Hey, let me get this thing going. And they... You know, they subscribe to Bloomberg, MarketWatch, CNN Money, this, 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 and this. And then they got all these articles coming in, and they see something come across. Well, Forbes list said this, and this is a great stock because blah, blah, blah. You know, I wanted you to give the insight of why do they see that? How does that stuff get up there? Well, it, you know, now, 
I'm going to, there's, there's a couple of things. One is you got to remember that Wall Street makes money by generating transactions. Whether they're investment banking, stock, bond, buy, sell, they make money on the transactions. So they want to generate, they want to generate movement. They want to, they want things to move. They don't want you to buy and hold. They want you to, they want you to trade. The more you trade, they make more money. They don't make money when you make money. Now, nowadays, well, although nowadays a lot of it is tied to fees, which I've always been really skeptical of because you, like a lot of these uh, funds and money managers are getting fees for you to hold big stocks like General Electric. Well, how smart do you have to be to buy General Electric? It's like one of the biggest companies in the world. It's been around for 100 years. There's countless volumes written on it. Every company covers it. You know, it, it, it's, I, I don't think you're a genius for holding General Electric, and I don't know how much it's worth paying somebody to watch General Electric for you. On the other hand, I, I mean, I can remember some crazy stocks in my day, like, like Genentech and uh, Amgen, and like, even, my, uh, I used to own a lot of Monsanto, you know, uh, you know, I know GMOs are like an evil word for some people, um, but, you know, Monsanto was an interesting play, way, especially way back in the early 90s. It was, we made, you know, that was, that was a great stock for us for a very long time. Um, we had, you know, a lot of these things, um, what happens is, is you got, is, and, it, and, it, and don't, that doesn't mean don't write off automatically, like everything you read isn't wrong, or it isn't a ripoff, or it isn't a con. That's not what I mean. What, I, you, what you have to be is skeptical. Now, if you see, you read an article in Forbes, and Forbes says, hey, we like General Motors at this price, and this is why. If the why part makes sense, logical sense, like it says, like you go, like if they say, well, we like the idea that uh, General Motors is making all the, you know, now they're coming out with all these cars that get 100 miles to a gallon, um, Oh, no, how about the opposite? They say, we like General Motors because they're building a lot of trucks, and the trucks are selling really well. And you know in your heart of hearts you feel like we're going into a big recession like next year, and you're thinking, boy, truck sales aren't going to be so good if we're going to go into a big recession. But this is the reason they like the stock. You say, oh, that doesn't make sense to me. It's not like, you know, uh, like that makes or, – or, or maybe you say, you know what, next year I think the economy is going to really boom and house building has been slow for a while. It's going to come back really big. I bet you these truck sales are really going to take off. And General Motors is there. They're the ones. And then you say, wow, that makes sense to me. You've got to look at – got to look at like everything else. It's like, it's like, it's like the why. Like I like this stock. And, and, and James, here, you know, I, I, I wanted you to – I wanted you to hit on it, like you said, right? Now, now, you know, you said be skeptical or be, you know, yes, have the mindset you have that to, hey, you this have to this go. You have to think for your like. Does it make any sense? Like you look, they're recommending a stock. Does it make any sense? Can I make money? I remember the craziest thing was like a couple of times they were recommending Yahoo, like, and it was rumored to be taken over, and the takeover price was like lower than the stock price. It was clear that people were trying to dump that stock, and they were looking to run for cover. And uh, they were trying to get out of the stock because it had been a big disappointment. So essentially, so I want to break it down for you to understand. So essentially, these are people who hold the stock, who held the stock, they pretty much ran articles saying, hey, look, it's going to be a takeover. Right. And they were trying to say just so that people can jump in and buy it so they can get rid of theirs. Right. They're trying to sell it. They're, they're trying to push it. They need, like, a lot. You see a lot of that, especially with CNBC. 
Um, and social media is ripe with it, like all the time. You gotta, you gotta be skeptical. You got, you can't buy into the hurricane. You gotta, you gotta be the guy. You, you, you gotta follow. Like for a lot of people, what they used to say, I know, like uh, Investors Business Daily is a perfect example of this. But a lot of people would say, this, create some rules for yourself. Like a lot of people don't have the mental discipline. Like I'm a big thinker. So I'm, it's easy for me. I look at this and I go, well, that's interesting, but that makes no sense at all because I already know this. Like I think, oh, the economy is going to be bad next year. That's not going to be good for that company. They're going to get creamed. There's no way I'd buy it because of that. Um, but, you know I want to, James, I want to bring it to reality, what's going on today, right? Like a okay. prime example, what you just said about Yahoo, Twitter, I think, fell in that same box. Twitter yeah, stock Twitter's has been, been down. a big, a big disappointment. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it, it hasn't like been this. able to generate money. Um, mm-hmm. They've gotten a lot of bad publicity because Twitter is kind of, by some people's standards, Twitter has become a cesspool for like, like I, ha- I hate to use the word hate speech because I think that's such a bogus term, but it almost has become a place where, where it seems like unbridled attacks on people, like sort of like, I, what I, I prefer to call it social media bullying, like, like you, don't, you don't, we say this and you don't agree with us, so we're just going to attack you like nonstop until either you're off social media or you're stopped talking. And there, there's like a lot of that on Twitter, and it's gotten a bad rap for it. Um, I love Twitter, I think, uh, but but for in order to use Twitter correctly, and this is where I think they're weak. You have to create, for example, you can create um, groups, and you could say, oh, I have a group of financial people, and I can watch that group and listen to all the Twitters from Goldman Sachs and all these different zero hedge and whatever you're reading, and then you can get 20 different opinions in one shot. And you can start to develop your own consensus because you see that it's only 140 characters and you start reading all the stuff they're talking about and like you start to say, oh, well, you know what? Boy, I don't know about General Motors, but I do like the auto industry here. I think some of these points about business has been slow for a while, it's going to come back. Or like right now, a lot of people are saying, well, there's a big problem with the auto industry. A lot of people are worrying about the defaults with auto loans. It seems to be ramping up like we might have a record in defaults. for. So how is that going to affect the auto industry? Well, a in my personal opinion, it's going, to, it's going to kill it because everybody buys cars now. They lease them. They buy everything on credit. There's nobody like me anymore who, like, buys a three-year-old car and pays cash for it because, you know, my, uh, one thing I've learned in my life is cars are a lot of fun, but from an investment standpoint, they're, they like, they're less than worthless. They're, they're, <laughs> they're, they're, if you can put a negative value on them, they have a negative value. They're, they're purely like, they're great for your ego, but they have nothing, like, they don't do anything else other than, and, and of course, convenience and stuff like that, but they don't, they have no, there's really no upside to buy, even classic cars, it's really hard to make money with them unless you're really lucky. Um, you know and what, James, I was, you know what, I wanted to hit on something too, what you hit on with Twitter was, right. it was this big rumor of Google and Apple buying them out, and I seen the stock yes. just shoot up, yes. you know, then all of a sudden, I now, seen a what would happen stock. is a rumor yeah. like that, you would use, if you own the stock, see, if I own the stock, I would look, if it jumped enough, I would look to sell it on those rumors right away. I wouldn't buy into a, I would never buy into a fury like that. Once in a while, you can get really lucky and make money, but most of the time, the, the, the stock moves way ahead, so it'll be fully valued or maybe even overvalued just on the rumor news, and then it will back off, and the buyout price will, will even be a little under. 
like sometimes they used to call it a take under where like this used to happen a lot with internet stocks there'd be a rumor it was going to get bought out it would go from say 25 to 50 the buyout price would be 45 bucks a share and it was actually and then they call it a take under and uh, mm. then they even though even though if if you would have bought it at 25 you'd still be way up and what that what a lot of people do is they buy into that frenzy and and it and that's how you get totally burned. I, I would say number one rule of life: never buy anything on those rumors unless you have you have to have you have to be really experienced or you have to have some really good reason to not do that. But I would I would say in general I would always disregard those things. What you might want to do now though is Twitter maybe maybe it wasn't on your radar. Now suddenly it's on your radar. So now you want to go back and look at the way it trades. Look at the charts. Look at the problems they're having. The problems they're having is they're, they're having an issue with a lot of Internet stuff is it's a cool stock, but they're having trouble figuring out how to make money. And I, I, I have a tendency to think that it's, it's not a technology issue with them as much as it is um, it's, a, it's, a user, it's a user interface issue. They have, uh, like, people, people don't, they can't make money with it because people don't understand what to do with it. And um, they've not really countered a lot of the bad press. Like what I like about it is I can create my own news feed. And so if I want to look about for investing or maybe I have another news feed that's all sports because I want to look at my teams or I have another news feed that's like all my friends and I just want to see what they're doing. Or I have another news feed now. I, I know you're a married guy, but I'm I'm a I'm a single guy. I want to have I have all pretty girls I have an eye on, so I want to keep an eye on them, see if they have boyfriends, see what they're doing. <laughs> you know, and in fact, that was probably the first thing I check in the morning because I want to start my day off with it. You know, there's nothing like a pretty smile, and if if you don't already have one with you all the time, you got to kind of you know, social media is an opportunity to see a pretty smile first thing in the morning. You don't have to do anything. So, click it on. I see a pretty smile. I'm ready to go. Then so I wanted to hit what you said, James. You know, you hear me, James? You there, James? I think we have lost James. But we'll use this as a cool little... Segway. You're now tuned in to the Investor Show. Guys, we're back at a little uh, interruption there, but we got a uh, James Ford back. Uh, like we were saying, we was talking about, um, like I was telling you know, you was talking about seeing a pretty face in the morning and the news feeds and stuff like that. But one thing that uh, I wanted to get to now is for us to speak about uh, the current market. You're that person that's coming in the market. I want you to talk about, if you're that person that's like, hey, you know what, uh, I've been watching this, I'm, I'm cued into investing, I'm ready to invest. What do you say to that? Then I want you to speak about the people who are already in the market. Hey, I brought all these stocks, I have them, should I sell them, should I keep them, what should I do? You know, then I kind of want you to speak on to the people who kind of like, hey, I want to hedge this thing, you know, whether I think it's going up or down. What do you got to say to them, James? Oh, um... 
boy, that's a, that's a whole playful. Well, first of all, people <laughs> who are looking to get in, um, again, first of all, every, every investor is, is – investing is probably uh, the single most individualistic thing you can do. Everybody is different. There are I, – I, I never believed in this idea of cookie-cutter prescriptions like you're 30, you should do this, this, and this, and then you're 40, you should do that, that, and that, and you're 50, and you should do this, this, and this. I, I don't buy into any of that. Everybody is very unique, like their risk tolerances, what they're interested in, their, in, like their, their intellectual, their specialized knowledge strengths, like they may know something – or feel comfortable with something where somebody else would not feel comfortable with it, um, all these things. So in general, first of all, investors looking to get in now if you've saved your money and stuff and that. I would say the market's a little flaky right now. And I think there's going to be a lot of ups and downs, which clearly as an investor, you want to you know, buy low and sell high, right? So you, you can take advantage of that. If you're a long-term investor and you don't have a lot of experience, I would just start averaging in. I wouldn't pay attention every day to what the Dow and the S&P does and all that stuff. I would just forget about all that. You know, buy yourself an index fund or a couple of easy things and just start, you know, just – don't spend it all, but just start buying in slowly and just average in over time, and you're going to be fine. If you're already there and you have a bunch of stocks and you're a little more experienced and you're thinking about taking gains or losses or things like that, I think you want to analyze every stock you want to go through. Like if you bought a stock at 5 and the stock now is at 4, and you bought it at 5 thinking it was going to go to 10 because they were going to come out with some new drug, well, if that circumstance has now changed, like the drug didn't work or something like that, it might be just time to take your loss and move on. Because not only did you lose the money, you're losing money, you're losing opportunity costs by that stock sitting there, and frankly, it could get worse. It could even go down more. Um, the, the other thing you want to think of, like what I've learned mostly over time is that um, the losses are the tough things. If you can keep your losses, you minimize your losses, over the long run, you're going to get those gains. Investing, I, I think we talked about this before in some of the other videos, investing is like baseball. If you get up 10 times and you get three hits out of 10 at-bats, you're going to be in the Hall of Fame. You're going to be a superstar. You're going to be like Willie Mays. You're going to be like Babe Ruth. You're going to be like Lou Gehrig. You're going to be like Ted Williams, you know? Um, it, it, that means if you only, if you only if your chances of success are three out of ten, that means seven times you're going to fail or break even or it's just not going to work. And as an investor, you really got to look at investing the same way. So what you want to make sure is all those times it doesn't work or it only works or it doesn't work out like you planned, you re, you don't get creamed. And so you're always looking to minimize losses. Um, I don't really have a problem with taking gains. I, I think, you know, like a lot of people get paranoid because, oh, I've got to pay taxes. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I've seen more people lose money because they, they were so worried they were going to pay a dollar's worth of taxes. Um, and then they lost <laughs> huge gains because they delayed instead of just, you know, doing the right thing. I would, what I always tell people is um, if, the stock, if the stock is – it's time to sell the stock, sell the stock. The, tax, the taxes are around because – Taxes are like I look at it as that. That's one thing we're all, we're all going to have to pay taxes one way or the other. You might avoid it, you might put it off, you might get away with not paying them for a while, but eventually you're going to pay taxes. So, it, like you don't want 
that really to pressure your decision for most investors. You know, like when you're when you get older and you retire, there's there there starts to be some changes in a lot of the tax laws. And sometimes it's just more beneficial to sell things or do things. That's that's like a different story. But for a guy like a middle-aged guy, like fooling around, you know, with a you know a portfolio who has some experience, if that stock, you know, if you bought Apple at you know 100 and it's 150, and you think that's the price to sell it, take the money and run. Because um, you know you can always there's always <laughs> going to be another opportunity to buy a stock. There's always more opportunities. Opportunities are almost limitless. So you just got to be patient. Now, another thing to think about is if you decide either not to sell and not to buy, and you don't do anything with that stock, you just sit with it and hold it, that doesn't mean you're not doing it, but like not making a transaction. This is a lot of novice investors get stuck with this. They need to make transactions because that's how they feel they're doing something. Sometimes doing nothing is doing something. Like Mm -hmm. I have some stocks that I own like since 1994. I still own them. Oh there's goodness. reasons there's reasons for that and <laughs> some I'm sitting on huge gains so it like it's it's like enormous gains but you know in the last 10 years it hasn't been anywhere near what it was the 10 prior years but it 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 it's just some of these things it's just there there's a there's a combination of many reasons I would sit with the stock um and uh you just you, you know this is all up to you but i but i think if you're there i mean i would always i'm always looking to you got to be you got to you know like the that when even if you're a buy and hold investor or a long term player or you've been averaging in over a long period of time you still need to actively like monitor your portfolio because sometimes things happen i don't want to tell you how many people thought enron was just the oil and gas company and bought it before it turned into a ponzi scheme and then it it turned into a ponzi scheme and they never realized it was a ponzi scheme and then they got burned at the very end yeah. um you know, like, like it, it, you know, because we hear about Enron now, we say, oh, it was a big scam, and they did this and that. But you got to remember, for like twenty, it was like twenty years before that, it was a utility stock. Like nobody thought wow. people, people who owned it thought about it as like a utility. It was like a, it was like a gas pipeline company, mm-hmm. and um, and then it, it, then it morphed into all this other stuff, and. Um, so, so, so sometimes the situation changes, and, and those, that's what you have to look for, and that's when you, you want to move to do something. Sometimes the situation doesn't change, even though the stock's not doing anything. Sometimes, um, I can tell you in the early 90s, I bought a lot of Qualcomm, and it used to trade um, in a very small range, and it did it for years. And all of a sudden, one day, it broke out of that range. And once it broke out of the range and started trading up, I jumped on it like it was like falling on a grenade. I just like, I just piled into it like everything I had. I mean, I like, you know, I mm. sold my, I, I like moved into a cardboard box and lived on the street. I just like, Walmart, right? Yeah, I just, yeah, I, I, I you know, I, I, it was like, it was like Atlantic City. I put it all on red, man. That was it. <laughs> and now, um, what, what makes you jump onto Walmart so, so heavily? Well, not, not Walmart, Qualcomm. Qualcomm was the big one. That was the big. Well, one was I had studied the stock and they owned a technology called CDMA, which I thought was going to dominate the phone business, and it was going to dominate. Um, eventually, it was going to dominate all this sort of uh, wireless interface stuff. Like, uh, for example, in Europe, this is more common. You can go to a vending machine and with your cell phone, you can pay for a Coke by you know putting your phone number in it. We'll just charge your cell phone. 
and you'll like your cell phone bill will get charged or or you can even pay like a credit card like like scan that way and just pay that way now Qualcomm because they own CDMA um, you got to remember there was a couple of advantages they had one it, it made it imp- almost impossible for people to steal your signal and if you remember in the old days the early days of cell phones that was a major problem people would steal your signal and then suddenly you'd, 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 you'd get a bill in the mail for like $10,000 a phone bill because somebody was, you know, calling all over the world on your phone bill. And that was, that was like a big thing in the early 90s. Um, so Qualcomm had an ability to stop that. And it also, uh, they had an ability, the way the, way the, the signal was broadcast, it was, it was encrypted. So you couldn't, like nobody could really listen to you unless you had the key. So that was another kind of interesting advantage because I traveled a lot in the 90s and, you know, you were always paranoid about somebody listening, even though, you know, we frankly, it'd be lucky that I was important enough that anybody would want to be listening on my phone, (laughs) 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 at least in those days. You know, uh, I had a, so so what what do you think we're, uh, current economy, what do you think we're at right now? Well, I, I think we're in a little scary spot. I mean, you had a, you basically had a bunch of people coming to Washington really in the last 15, I would say 20 years. And their answer to everything is just, uh, you know, borrow and spend like crazy and just have the Fed print money like there's no tomorrow. So the idea was to flood, you know, add, add a huge of increase to the velocity of money. And, uh, you know, the, the, sort of the idea has been like, you know, if I, if, I, if I ride by a crowd of people and I throw money out the window, people are going to take that $10 they find or that $100 and they're going to go spend it right away. And that's going to generate activity. And the government has done all kinds of stuff, like it's grown enormously. Um, it's, it's sponsored a lot of programs. It's spent money it doesn't have and borrowed tons of money and rang up huge amounts of debt. Um, it's, uh, it, it, to some degree, and, what's, and at the end of the day, it really hasn't done anything. It hasn't really worked. And because, because there's, there's some flaws, in my view, there's flaws in a lot of this. First of all, there's flaws in just printing money. There's flaws in the idea that the government's going to drive the economy. There's, 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 there's been a lot of other stuff going on. Um, while this has gone on, they've been raising taxes. They've been increasing regulation, which curtails business formation, which is exactly what they claim they're trying to do. Um, so I, I think right now you're kind of seeing the end result. And this market reminds me very eerily of kind of the, the flighty – I mean, in, in some ways it's very different, but it, it has that like sort of fluttering feel of like 1987 where we were kind of rolling into the summer and the market had been up huge and it was kind of fluttering really for no reason – it kind of was still going up sometimes, even though there really wasn't any reason. Like, uh, I like I just, uh, you know, you're you're just not getting the job creation that you need. You're, you know, they're talking 115,000, 125,000 in this economy. We need like 500 to 600,000 jobs a month. And I'm not talking about jobs as bartenders, strippers, or you know, tour guides. I'm talking about jobs like real jobs, like jobs where people make big money that they can afford to buy houses and do stuff. And um, it's, it's, uh, we're just not generating those jobs because businesses, when, when, what's happening is when the Fed is running around throwing money out the window and people are picking up those $10 bills and those $100 bills, they're not running to spend it. They're putting it in their pocket and holding it because they're like, 
there's no there's no upside. Like they they don't know what to do with it. And the people who have more of that money, they're just putting it in the stock market because there's just no other place to go. I mean, there's the banks don't pay any interest. You have kind of an upside down interest yield curve. You have you have all kinds of negative issues that I think are going to come to a head here. They're just I, I think we've kind of kicked the can down as far as it's going to go in this one direction. And so what he, happened, James? Like you said back in '87, the summer '87. If you you know like like you say, the history will repeat itself. What makes you think? Uh, what happened back then in '87? Well, we got into we got we kind of we it was sort of up and down, and by the time we got into October, we got hammered, and we I mean hammered the likes of which like up to that point, unless I guess unless you were around in '29, you would have never you never saw anything like it in your life. I mean the whole basically the whole Nasdaq sort of crumbled. It broke its it had a broken back. It just it, the Nasdaq stopped working. New York Stock Exchange, like, functioned only because of, you know, the brute, like, I would say the talent of the floor, you know, the floor brokers in those days. They were experienced and smart and well-capitalized, and, you know, even they had a hard time with that, but they managed to stabilize the market. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of smart people. And then, um, but what, you know, what, what, see, what preceded a lot of these, you have to, you have to, economics is like everything else. It, it, it's not the theory is different than reality. Reality is reality. And you, you're not going to encourage people. People are not going to do something if you make it more expensive on them. They're going to look, they're going to trade out for a different option. Like, I like, uh, let's see, I like to eat, uh, I like to eat steaks, but they've gotten really expensive. So sometimes I eat pork chops and I even eat chicken because I kind of trade it off because it's a little more affordable. I still eat steak once in a while, but I don't eat them every night where I used to eat them every night because it's just too expensive. Like the government doesn't understand that because they look at money. They look at the money that it's their money. Their their taxes to them are income. To everybody, to all us taxpayers and all the businesses, taxes are a huge expense. And um, in general, historically, you have two major expenses for most middle-class people, maybe three. Um, you have taxes, insurance, and then, of course, you have uh, education. So those three, and all three of those things have skyrocketed. Um, and uh, probably in the next year, even it's going to skyrocket more. And it's just become totally unaffordable to do anything. So that's why no one is spending any money. Like, uh, you know, people just aren't do, doing stuff. So I think the market yeah. is probably going to reflect this. Um, the other thing going on is you have a weird, you have an interesting political thing. Because if you get away from the insults and the name calling and everything else, you really have a big insider. That would be the Clinton, Hillary Clinton, right? And you have a total outsider, the Donald. Um, you know, you have an election where for a first time in a really, well, probably since Reagan, you have almost, a, and, and, and Trump is even more of an outsider than Reagan. Trump is like really an outsider. I mean, he's never even had political office before this. He's a reality TV star. He's a, he's a real estate mogul. He's a, he's a New Yorker. That's even worse. And he, you know, so he is, <laughs> so he's really an outsider. And, and I think if you get an outsider elected, it's going to – I think in the long run, it's going to be awesome. But in the short run, it's going to be a little rocky because there's been a lot of deals made and a lot of agreements made um, that are all going to come unglued. 
when he gets in there if he wins. And you know the you know, and then then the other thing is if Hillary wins, what's the upside? Well, you know what I want to say this since you brought this up on Wall Street, how does politics affect Wall Street? Well, in the old days, what they used to do is Wall Street is Wall Street is, 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 is from an industry standpoint. Wall Street is like it like morphs. Like Wall Street will back everybody, and then right at the last second, they pile on, and whoever wins will suddenly get this boost, and they'll all pat themselves on the back and say, "Well, you know, we liked Obama because he won." And, then, and, and now, and now we all jump, and like, and then they all love Jeb Bush, but that didn't work out. So then they all went to Hillary after that because she was the next, you know. Like they, they, they look, and and Wall Street, like, like investing works best when you you you, you want certainty. So when you know what you're going to get, even if what you're going to get is not that good, but you know what it is, it's better for investing. When there's a lot of uncertainty, like Trump is very uncertain to a lot of people. If you're, if you're a real New Yorker, he's not so uncertain as he's being portrayed in the media. You would know, you know from his history, he has a long history in New York, um, that just to, for the most part is being somewhat misrepresented by the media, um, actually being massively misrepresented by the media. But So if you're a real New Yorker, you'd know like a lot of the, you know, you, you kind of know what to expect with Trump because he's got that New York swagger. You know he's got a big mouth. And you don't take it like literally, like when he says something like the media takes everything he says literally. So when he says he's going to build a wall, well, yeah, you might get bricks in a real wall or like some kind of fence. Yeah, that makes sense. But I think the point of that is that he wants immigration laws to be enforced and he wants to make sure we know who's coming in here so we can all feel safer. Like, first of all, you know, the number one rule of coming from New York is before you can get anything, you've got to have public safety. The public has to feel safe. You're not going to get any investment, any anything, if people don't feel safe. And that's, that's the first thing you need to do. And then, and, then, and, then, and then after that, then you need to create the business conditions. And, you know, right now I would say we need, you know, massive tax cuts. We need an enormous decrease in government spending in a lot of areas. Um, we need, you know, there's just, a, there's just so much stuff going on that just, is, it, it, it's making a few people rich but at the expense of everybody else, but it's not really doing anything for anybody. You know, like all this, you know, like I'm all for alternative energy and stuff like this, but the government's like track record of investing in alternative energy has been an absolute catastrophe. Meanwhile, the one thing that worked, which is fracking, is like the government's try to stop it at every, you know, every second. And fracking's been this huge success. And like I said, I'm into alternative energy, so, you know, show me it works. Give me a car, it gets 100 miles to a gallon and runs on a battery, I'm all cool with that. But, uh, but don't tell me I can't frack either if they're getting oil from the middle of North Dakota. Like, in, like we, we suddenly are no longer have to be dependent on the Middle East for oil. I'm all for that, too. You know, it's like, I wouldn't say no to any of those things. And uh, I, I just think like we're, we're, we, we kind of, we had certain policies that went in place, 
probably during the Bush administration that mm-hmm. really for all the criticism, the Obama administration has kind of doubled down on all this stuff. It hasn't, nothing's really changed. It's like the same stuff. They just did more of it. Now, and James, I, I want to ask a quick question, yeah. like you were saying, right, about um, the different government spending. Now, if, you, if we come in and we do those massive tax cuts, like you, you know, massive tax cuts and reduce government spending, what type of effect would that have on Wall Street? Oh well, I, in the in the sh- well in the in the short run, it, it's going to rock. If Trump gets elected, it's going to rock the markets. I'd say it's going to royal world markets like dramatically. I would say in the short run, you're going to get a lot of. But see, I would look at that, and I think all your listeners should think is that is a buying opportunity. And whether you're a Hillary person or a Trump person. If you're going to be, you have to, in order to make money and be an investor, you have to be an investor first. Forget the politics for, you know, forget that I'm a Democrat and if Trump wins, I'm going to be mad and what am I going to do, move to Canada? No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to, how am I going to make money off this? And then you're thinking like a real Wall Street person. And what you got to say is, okay, you have a status quo candidate against an outsider. The out, if the outsider wins, it's going to shake everybody up big time. There's going to be a lot of uncertainty for at least a little while. It's, that's a buying opportunity probably of this century. And it's going to be an opportunity to get in there and, and, and you know, make out. And that's what you should concentrate on, you know. And you know what? Like, well, like I have friends who like this, and they say, well, you know what? My guy didn't win this time. Next time, maybe next time he's going to win. So, uh, you know, we just go on. You just do what you got to do. And uh, I, I, think, I think people need to, like – like, like the reality, it, it's, it's really sad that our country in some ways has declined so greatly that politics is so significant to all of us. Because pretty much yeah. until about 20 years ago, it wouldn't have made one bit of difference who was president for most people. It just would make no difference, unlike Europe and now, other countries. I have another question for you, right? Somebody okay. said, okay, well, if Trump gets selected uh, due to this next election and they stop all the spending and whatever the case may be, and the markets get rocked. What about just shorten the market? Shorten means to everybody. Well, don't yeah. Know now, now I think you know that's the the problem with shorting is that you can lose more than you bet. So if you, the stock's a hundred and you're betting it's going to go down, and you short it, and it goes down to fifty, and suddenly it bounces back really quickly, and it's a hundred and fifty, you're excuse the excuse the language, you're screwed. I mean, it, it, shorting is a from a timing standpoint, you can really burn yourself seriously bad. And so you have to be really careful. And I generally, for novice investors, I think that's a folly um, unless it's like a very particular thing. Like, for example, say you saw that when oil stocks were at a peak at like whatever it was, $145 a barrel and all oil stocks were way up. And you're looking at all this stuff and you're saying, wait a minute, there's all this fracking in the U.S. Suddenly the U.S. becomes the world's largest oil exporter overnight. And you, because of fracking, you know that's going to change the oil market. So if you start short and like that's about it, like like you, that was like a layup. I mean, about as close to a layup. It's still going to be dangerous, but it, it's 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 just shorting is a very dangerous trade. I just think for most people, I would concentrate on just kind of like if the market gets riled and you, you maybe you get a big sell off and a couple of bounces and things, you just start buying into the to the turmoil. 
You know, maybe you step up your buying because things mm. go, you know, who knows? Suddenly the Dow was at 8,000 instead of 7,000. Nah. Like, I, I had a question. God. Like, back in 08, we saw in the market crash, precious metals went through the roof, right? Yes. Now, if we have another crash, yes. you see precious metals making another run back? I would say, you know, gold is, the problem is, is gold has been up so much over the last 20 years, really. Although, you know, it might have been flat maybe the last five years, but it's, it's, it's made an enormous move. And, um, but I, I, I think, yeah, there's, you know, that's another way you could do it. You could buy those. The only problem is, is like in particularly, 2008 was a little weird because I was kind of selling my business, so I, I wasn't quite watching things as carefully as I normally do. Um, but like in 2000, when the NASDAQ melted down and all the tech stocks went way down, when that went down, everything went down for a while. So everything just kind of gets sucked with it. So it, you know, and, and, and look, if you want certainty, what's more certain than gold? Like stuff like, like gold or like you said, like precious metals. Um, that could be a spot. I just, I just like, I, I just think for particularly for novice investors and, and people with stomach, I think you want to keep everything really simple. I, I wouldn't like a lot of this stuff, like, like commodities and stuff. My experience has been over time. It's like a faster way to lose a lot of money in a hurry. Like if you need to lose a lot of money in a hurry, you get involved in futures and commodities and all this other stuff. Cause if you don't really know what you're doing, you really get burned. And, you know, a way to play these things is like, say, you buy a, you know, for example, uh, there's a stock BPT. It's the Purdue Whole Bay Trust, and it pays a huge dividend based on the royalties of the oil in Purdue Whole Bay in Alaska. Now, what happened is many years ago is the, the oil was over time depleting. In other words, it was running out. There was new surveys done and new discoveries in the same area, and they basically quadrupled the amount of oil that was there from what they originally thought. So the stock kind of moved up a lot because suddenly it became worth a whole lot more because there was a whole lot more oil there. The dividend, when oil prices go way up, the dividend goes way up. When oil prices go down, the dividend goes way down because that's basically how they pay you. Um, and it, and it's more of a stock for, div, for, you know, like a dividend play. Um, but these, these kind of things, like, these are the kind of things you'd look at. P, like, what was that symbol again? You said BLT. Uh, BPT. And, 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 and generally I don't want to get into, like, I'm, I, you know, I'm just trying to use this as a sort of an example because I remember yeah, yeah. this stock. Another one people used to buy a lot is people used to buy all those oil tanker stocks. And a lot of those, I don't remember the symbols, but um, there used to be a lot of these oil tanker stocks because if the oil industry was busy, um, they'd be shipping a lot of oil all over the place. And it was like a really good play for a while. And then when, when, when business slowed down, the prices of these things would go way down and their dividends would shrink dramatically. And um, Now, what do you think about... Stocks that pay high dividends. We talk about seven, you know, eight percent. I seen some ten, twelve, fourteen. We think about those. We think that they are kind of. Uh, I know you got to do your research, but some people look at it and say, "Hey, these stocks that do this, we don't trust them for whatever reason." Oh, it depends on the industry, right? If they're if they're paying these things with earnings, the big thing you got to make sure is they're not paying a dividend that they're they're borrowing the money to pay that dividend. Um, nowadays, most of those big stocks. Um, that pay huge dividends are either, uh, 
you know, like in old days, banks used to pay huge dividends. They were like, I don't, I'm, I, I don't think that's really the case anymore. Um, utilities used to pay a lot of dividends because utilities are a regulated monopoly, and basically they just have to pay it out to their shareholders. That's like a good, you know, like like some stocks. That's what you want. You want those big dividends. And uh, some people would tell you in this kind of market, especially when you when you can't get any interest in the bank. The big dividend often can be a cushion against a downside market. Now, you know, usually those stocks that pay big dividends are a little more stable, but I, I've seen them get pretty volatile. I don't know how I don't know how true all that is. And then, of course, there's a lot of preferred shares where the shares are set up just to pay dividends. They're almost like it's almost like buying debt, like you're buying bonds. So again, this is it's like company specific. You have to know what you're buying. Are you buying? Uh, let's see, what's the stock? Are you buying like PSENG, which is a utility in New Jersey? Well, that's a utility, so that's a, that dividend is probably really solid. Or Con Edison in New York City, or you know whatever. Or you're buying something like BPT, where suddenly oil prices went from $145 a barrel to $30 a barrel. In, in some ways, you might see some dividend growth if oil starts to reverse. You know, depending on what you think. Now, if you think we're going to go into a big recession, you're probably not going to think too much of energy companies. Um, okay. So now, do usually, if, you know, if you're, hey, I'm that new investor, and you know, in a flaky situation, we don't know, maybe the market's getting ready to tumble. Yeah, a lot of uncertainty is, floating around would, right would now. Put, I mean, if you're not scared, you you're not paying attention. Would you just put your money in cash and just put your money in cash and wait? Well, I would, I would, what I would do is I'd make a plan. I'd, I'd find some stocks I really wanted to own for whatever reason. Like, you know, maybe I have experience, I know a lot. Of, like, I work for GE, and that's a stock I want to own. Or I work for a little local bank, and I want to start buying it. I would, you know, and I, I would just start averaging into those things. I wouldn't, I wouldn't just sit, like, I don't think you're going to catch, like, by waiting for the market to get weak, um, I don't think you're going to ca- – I wouldn't expect to catch the dead bottom. The safe thing to do is if the market starts to – say Trump gets elected or um, – yeah, say it's a big – and worse yet, say all the polls said Hillary was going to win the night before and Trump wins by a landslide, okay? Then you're going to have like this crazy – the next day the market's going to get jolted. Like it's going to be like – it's going to be like a bride left at the altar. And so it's going to probably get jolted. Um on the other hand, the way the market works is you don't know that might be factored way ahead of time. It might already it might have already adjusted to that. It could possibly have you know adjusted way ahead of time. Um, but so say that like you're not looking like you don't want to look and say oh my god let's buy this day because this is going to be the dead bottom of the market. No, you, you, you just <laughs> the smart thing to do is just start start buying into the into the turmoil. And just keep adding in there, and you buy as it goes down, and you buy as it goes up, and just keep, just stick to your plan. Like if you you say, listen, I saved up my, I got twenty five grand right now sitting here. Um, I but I'm I I think the market's a little peaky here, a little breathy. Let's see if we get a little selling. You know, we get a couple of days, or or maybe you just make one of those rules. Anytime the Dow's down a hundred points, I'm going to buy something. And so you just make a rule yeah. like it could be arbitrary, but then at least it gets you in some kind of discipline. And then, you know what, James, I, like you say, the, the dollar cost averaging, right? You know, yeah, I, I just think for on. most people, that's the way to do almost anything for especially smaller investors. Now, so by you managing that type of money in one time, wouldn't that pretty much be a hedge fund? 
Well, it was there was there was different. There was discretionary accounts. In other words, we just trade the accounts. There were trading partnerships where they were kind of discretionary. We would have four or five people. They put money in. We just trade them like you know they'd all sign a thing and say, look, this is money they can afford to lose. We trade the death out of them, and then at the end of the year, we just send everybody a check. And uh, <laughs> so you had that. You had yeah. I had regular people buying mutual funds and. I had, I had a couple of people who I, we had some very big rollovers from 401k plants, and they had a couple of million dollars in mutual funds that were just from a 401k that they had worked in a job like for 45 years. And they basically, the guy said, oh, well, you know, put, we, you can save whatever, 7%, and we're going to match the whole 7%. Well, they did it. And then they retired, and they were like, wow, and they were like 55, and they were kind of too young to take the money so they still had a lot of money in these things so then you you know you were managing a lot of that kind of stuff but that was usually you know more not transactional like you know sort of slower money it wasn't you know not everything is driven by transactions you know it's okay. it, some stuff is like like that was more like a lot of big mutual funds sometimes you get a money they they like a certain money manager you could hire the money manager to manage some of it like it, we used to call them wrap accounts and you like i'd get a little bit of a fee and the other guy would charge a fee and i'd be splitting it with them and mm-hmm. and basically if he made the more money they made the bigger the fee would be and uh okay. You know, stuff like that. There was a, there, it was a mix of a lot of stuff. There was a, there was a good, I would say, twenty some percent in, in like bonds, maybe maybe thirty five percent at a high. Um, I always had a hot hand for tech stocks. I always liked to trade the fund, whatever wherever the action was. I always looked for the, the like I learned about a sector. What makes that sector? You learn all the details, and then you learn about how the stocks in those sector trade. And then you start looking at the individual stocks. So I do this big sort of top mm-hmm. down. You get you first. You look at the economy and say, okay, I think these five sectors are going to be hot. Let's learn about each sector. What makes them move? What are the what are the significant things that are going to make this go up or down? What is the what it, what what because you'll find most stocks and most sectors. There's usually only a couple of things at the end of the day that are really going to drive the price one way or the other. Okay. Now I had a question for you. Go ahead. With these discretionary accounts, you know, and managing that type of money, you know, you know, up in the billions of dollars or whatever the case may be, um, are you? Do you think you will come back? Oh, you mean you mean if if we have a big sell-off, or would I come back or, in the market, or would I? Come, um, yeah, would you come back and like manage to take some clients? I'm, or, uh, well, what's going on right now is I have a couple of projects that have just been long delayed that I'm trying to finish. Um, mm-hmm. I also have a little ambition because I'm really enjoying um, doing this tour stuff because it's a lot of fun. Um, it it's it for I've always been a history buff. And because uh-huh. I worked in finance, I've never been able to use history ever to make money. So I'm kind of <laughs> having fun with this idea oh. that this was like a hobby I had. I'm like a history bug. And then I worked in finance, so now I can actually make money doing that. And it's, it's, it's a, it's a, so I'm, I'm, I'm working on sort of building that business because it, the best way to make money in the market is what you trade. You don't want to be paying the rent with the money you're fooling around well, with. Well, before we so, jump, jump into that. If somebody wanted to get a tour with James, how do they do it? Um, Wall Street inside yeah, of Yeah, you can go to Wall Street Experience. Uh, that's the name of the company. Uh, mm-hmm. Generally, particularly right now, Mondays, I usually do. There's a, there's a financial crisis tour in the morning. 
Uh, it's about the 2008 financial crisis, which is very relevant right now because, let's face it, Deutsche Bank may do a Lehman Brothers very shortly. So that may that may be a crazy thing coming. Um, but it, and then in the afternoon they have we have at 1:30 we have what they call the Wall Street Insiders Tour, which is kind of more just a little general history and and knowledge about Wall Street downtown. It's kind of a lot of fun. So they're they're both real good tours. They're a lot of fun. You get to meet me. I'm kind of outspoken and. Uh, I'm very opinionated. <laughs> if you never met a real New Yorker, I'm probably the clo- I might be the closest thing you're going to get to me. <laughs> Meeting a New Yorker mm-hmm. from the old days where New York used to be really dangerous and crazy, where you wouldn't want to be a tourist <laughs> in New York. Um, now, now, now if, if they wanted to get inside of the New York Stock Exchange, how would they that? Do? They cannot do. There's no availability. Ever since 9/11, that's been shut down. They can do a tour, however, of the Federal Reserve which I would highly recommend and think is very cool. Um, the only thing is, with the Federal Reserve, you need to give yourself at least a month, six weeks to a month in advance mm-hmm. um, to do the tour be- uh, because they have to do a full background check of you before they let you in there. So what's so cool about that tour? Well, for one, they have uh, – there's about, I don't know, what is it, seven – 7,000 metric tons of gold in the place. (laughs) So you get to see piles of gold, and uh, the building's like a big fortress, and that's the, it's like the New York Fed there. So the New York Fed is, the Fed has 12 branches or 12 districts. Uh, The New York Mm -hmm. Fed is like one one of the power, is like the power broker. It's like the linchpin that all the other Feds work off of. And generally, like, if you see the Fed chair, like Janet Yellen, she's in Washington, she'll say something, but the people in the New York Fed are the ones who make it happen. And so it's kind of cool to see how the the Federal Reserve System itself is a really interesting thing. It is a topic for, that could be a three-hour conversation. It's like a a long, interesting topic. Another thing that people don't understand that much about, really. Well, James, we're definitely going to have to have you back. You know, oh, it's my pleasure. So it's much. my pleasure. It's so much that you just put out in just this episode. Thanks for listening to the Simple Investor Radio Show with author and investment advisor, Prince Dykes.